Hi, you guys. This is Liz Ryan, and this is the Truth About Work podcast, episode 52. We have some questions to answer. Question from Michaela about the podcast and our focus at Human Workplace. Question from Bree about including the salary range in a job ad, one of my favorite topics. Question from Ray about a question he's been advised to ask at a job interview, at the end of a job interview. Do I think it's a good question to ask or not? And then we're going to talk about employee handbooks a little bit, particularly the section on sexual harassment, uh, the $15 minimum wage, hot topic right now because that's included in the uh, American Rescue Plan of President Joe Biden, insubordination at work, and something I call lab rat research, lab rat research. So we're going to talk about all that stuff, see how far we get. So we're starting with a question from Michaela, who says, Hi, Liz, my mom turned me on to you six or seven years ago when you were writing a lot of job search advice, but it seems like your focus may have changed or broadened since then. Can you fill me in? Sure, Michaela. Yeah, I still write job search stuff and how to survive and thrive in the working world. But, you know, as soon as you start advising people on how to get a job and how to do a job and how to think about your career and all that, you get to, uh, you have to talk about the larger context because what happens is if you're giving advice, for example, should I take this job offer or what should I do about this job interview situation or whatever, you get back to, well, what do you want, you know? In order for me to give you good advice, I need to know what do you want longer term. And and I learned this when I was doing job uh, search coaching, career coaching in, in classes and college campuses and, you know, um, here locally in Denver, you know, big groups and that sort of thing and one-on-one coaching. It matters very much what you want and, and what you find out when you talk to folks about what they want is that it's a very hard topic for a lot of people to dwell on, to dig into. Understandably, for a few reasons. One is we feel it's a luxury. Oh, who am I to decide what I want? I mean, I, I just need a job. I don't want to be choosy. I don't, I don't know that I'm entitled to, you know, to, to get to choose to have standards, number one. Number two, if you're up against it financially, all the more reason to say, I don't want to anger the gods, you know, by assuming that I get to have this whole wish list. I just need a job. And number three, in general, it's just very hard for folks to think long-term. We are so pressed. I always say it's like we're driving into a snowstorm. It's funny, it's snowing here right now. We're driving into a snowstorm with the with the snowflakes hitting the windshield. You can barely see, and, and it's very hard to say, I, I, mean, I really want to think about the long-term. It's like, nope, right now I just need to get dinner on the table and buy groceries and I got some stuff to do for work and, you know, I got to put laundry in and we're just always under stress and and so focused on the to-do list and the near term that it can really feel like a luxury and presumptuous to stop and look at what we want long-term. And it turns out to be extremely important, the most important thing for almost every job search question, career question, how does this fit into your life? What do you want long term? Because the advice that I'm going to give you is going to be very much informed by your own plans and goals and aspirations. 
So this is foreign to us to really look at that. And that's why I'm always talking about getting altitude, looking down the road, you know, thinking about your own evolution, your growth, your reinvention. It can be a private thing, right? You don't have to tell anybody, but, but it is, it's an important practice, at least as important as any other daily practice, your yoga or fitness routine, whatever you do, right, for yourself. And you are the core. You are the center of your own life and you need to be, right? Even if you are totally committed to helping everyone else, your family, your friends, you know, you might volunteer somewhere, you still, you empowering yourself and taking care of yourself is fundamental. That's number one, right? So yeah, so, so our focus has broadened in that sense. We have to talk about getting stronger, growing muscles. And we also have to talk, Michaela, about the, the, the larger system in which we work and what is right and wrong with it. And right now it's in distress. Work in the United States in particular is in distress. It's not in a good place. Wages, real wages, earning power has dropped. I read today 16% in the last several years. We're, you know, we're able to buy that much less. So it's very, very hard just to make ends meet, just to survive, just to keep a roof overhead. It's harder than it's been in a long time and harder than it should be. And that's why things like the $15 an hour minimum wage become so pivotal, so critically important. And uh, employment at will affects us, our mental health, our emotional health, fear that you could be terminated at any moment at work because you can in the United States uniquely among industrialized nations. So that's why these topics impinge. They're inextricable. Like we can't separate what you should do now in your job search from these larger questions, both larger in the sense of the rest of your life and larger in the sense of our society and how it's organized. So I hope that makes sense. Michaela, long-winded answer on the first question, but I hope that kind of frames up for you why I'll bounce back and forth between very tactical, practical issues and then what might seem like loftier, more philosophical or policy-oriented issues because they're completely, completely related. They're all part of the human workplace cinematic universe. <laughs> if you can't tell, I've been watching WandaVision, so these multiverse issues are on my mind. All right. Next question is from Bree. Okay. Bree says, hi, Liz. I have been pushing the hiring managers in my company to include the salary range in our job ads and they staunchly refuse. They say they don't want to attract people who are only interested in the salary and not otherwise qualified. What should I tell them? Mm. Bree. I'm sympathetic to that, Brie, for sure, because I did your job or a similar job, and I know that, you know, assuaging fears, because what we're talking about right now is their fear, their fear that somebody will waste time having to look at these applications or resumes of unqualified candidates who are only attracted to the salary. The only good part of that message, two good parts, one is that you are an advocate for the so-called talent population, the prospective candidates, the people who are reading your job ads. So God bless you and thank you for doing that. And the other good part is if your hiring managers are worried that some unqualified folks might waste their time by applying for these jobs when they're really only interested in the salary, you must be paying decently well. So that's good to hear. 
uh, a lot of companies don't put the salaries in their job ads because they pay peanuts and they don't want candidates to know about that too early in the process. They want to have a chance to talk to them and sell them on the other attributes of the job before they actually disclose the, um, you know, unexciting salary levels. So good for you on both of those counts. Here's the thing. If you think about it logically, if you diagram your hiring process, you're much more likely to waste much more time, your time, anybody else involved in the staffing process, their time, your hiring manager's time, and the candidate's time when you don't put the salary range in the job ad because you're going to get people applying for the job who are qualified, but they're not interested in the salary that you have to pay, right? The thing is that the salary in the job ad clarifies what kind of person you need in a way that no other piece of information can do. And the classic, you know, jobs that illustrate this would be like a project manager. You say you need a project manager. You need somebody with five years of experience or seven years of experience. That could be a $45,000 US job and it could be a $150,000 job or more. We can't tell. There are not enough bullet points in the world, in the English language to tell us what kind of person you want unless you give us the salary range. Administrator, administrative assistant, is this a 50K job or is this a 150K job? Give me the salary range and I will know roughly what level of responsibility, discretion, budget authority, whatever comes with the job. The salary part is essential. And you know, and you know what's funny about this, Brie, is that for years, um, people have said, I have to know these candidates' salary history. Of course, that's illegal now in almost half of U.S. states. You can't ask for that information. How happy am I? I want it in all 50 states. But managers said, without their salary history, I can't really gauge this person. I can't put a value on them. So, okay, wait a minute. You're going to value them by what somebody else paid them? That's your job as a manager of any function. You need to be able to look at a resume and perhaps ask a candidate a few questions and you decide for yourself what they are worth, you know, so to speak, on the talent market. That's a critical um, skill everyone involved in recruiting has to have, including, of course, you and every other staffing person. Every HR person who has anything to do with the staffing process has to be able to talk to a candidate for a few minutes and say, okay, for us, I would say this person is worth about 60K or 80K or whatever the number is. So it works the same way in reverse. They need to see a salary level in order to know whether it's a job that would interest them. And you will save time. You will not waste time. You will save time on everybody's part, but you will also, by putting the salary range in the job ad, raise up the level of your company in terms of your reputation in the talent market. You're going to look more professional because you are being more professional. Leaving the salary range out of a job ad in 2021 looks sneaky. It looks like you're trying to be cheap. It looks like you're being less than transparent because you are. It's a, just a terrible look. And if you want to win the so-called talent wars, you got to be forthcoming, put that information out there. But here's the other thing, your job or whoever staffs the back end of that uh, recruiting funnel, the applicant tracking system, reviewing resumes, when you come in, you're going to take care of that. You've got 
between keywords and visual inspection, you're going to be able to quickly uh, separate the most suitable candidates from the rest of the folks and send those other people a very polite no thank you note. So it's not a hiring manager's problem. They're not the ones who have to screen resumes, presumably, right? They're not doing a first screen. That would not be a typical recruiting process. So you say, I will do that. Don't worry about it. Let's put the salary range in the job ad and I will screen the resumes and you will only see suitable resumes. But here's the thing, not only will they be suitable, we will know that they are okay with the salary range we put in the job ad because we stepped out there into trust and put the salary range in the job ad. All right, thank you, Bree. Okay, here's a great question from Ray who says, hi Liz, I've been advised to ask the question toward the end of a job interview, do you see any reason not to hire me? Do you agree? It's a good question. Mm, no, Ray, horrible question. There's a whole weird grovelly school of thought from the grovel school of job hunting. And this is one of the reasons that I started doing career advice and started the company, Human Workplace, like 13 years ago, is that I saw so much of this stuff in print and online. Do you see any reason not to hire me? It's so gross. Can you imagine going on a first date with someone and saying, do you see any reason not to see me again? I don't know. Like, this is the first time we're meeting. Why would you ask me that? First of all, are you insecure? That's a really weird thing to say socially. Secondly, I need time, like we're just meeting. We haven't even left the restaurant. And you want a grade? Are we children? It's gross, Ray. Do not ask, do you see any reason not to hire me? Look, it. if you went to an audition and you're gonna sing a song for a Broadway audition and you're scheduled for a 10 a.m. slot, now they're gonna be seeing people in 10 minute slots for the entire day or the entire weekend. You walk in there and you sing your song at, at 10.06 do you see any reason not to call me back? Like, dude, I don't know. We're in the middle of the process. Why would you ask that question? I have to go home. I have to ruminate. I have to think about all the people that I heard sing today. It's a, just a really weird, insecure, inappropriate, pushy, intrusive question. I never want you to ask to be graded. G-R-A-D-E-D. -E -D. <laughs> not graded like cheese. Why would you ask to be graded? Oh yeah, now they're committed? Oh no, I don't see any reason not to hire you. Oh, I guess I'm hired. The same goes with the question, oh, it's so cringy. Uh, when, should, when can I start? Like it's not 1947 Dagwood Bumstead. I'm dating myself right now. In case you don't know who that is, old fashioned cartoon, very much in this trope, the organization man, the boss, cigar chomping, you know, very imperious boss. It's not that world anymore. Do you see any reason not to hire me? Ew, no, you shake their hand or you wave goodbye on the Zoom call and that's it, that's it. We're not gonna roll over and play the submissive dog. That is only gonna ingratiate you to people that you would never want to work for anyway. Okay, so that's it for the questions. I have a couple of thoughts, observations, commentary, you might say. Saw a handbook the other day, an employee handbook. I'm geeky, weird about employee handbooks, because I think they're very, very important documents, incredibly important. And I think that every candidate for a job should be given a copy of the employee handbook so they can read it through, because it's really the closest thing we have to a contract. Because here in the United States, unless you negotiate 
uh, an, an individual employment contract or you're a member of a union, so you're covered by a collective bargaining agreement, we don't have contracts. I think we should. It's very important to me uh, that, that we in the United States should have employment contracts, as folks do in every single other industrialized nation. But right now, we don't have a contract, so the employee handbook becomes even more important. You're going to be asked to sign something that says, I have read and agree with the employee handbook. So, of course, you have to have an opportunity to read it before you accept an offer. And if they won't show it to you, that's a massive red flag. But in the employee handbook, if you notice, the entire thing is written to the benefit of the employee, employer and not to you, which is gross. And it's, it's why we're here doing this, to write the, you know, the equilibrium, to balance the scales, to say if you care about talent, as most companies say they do, then we need to actually build that into our practices, starting with the employee handbook. And one of the sections in virtually every employee handbook is about sexual harassment. And it says, we here at XYZ Industries do not tolerate sexual harassment. Then it goes on to say, you know, what'll happen to you if you sexually harass someone. And it might say, if you get sexually harassed, here's what you do and you call. So that's very a very poor way to address the topic. Because first of all, you cannot sit there and say, in print or in text online, we do not tolerate, because you do, because you do, because it happens everywhere. And that is cold comfort to the person who's dealing with sexual harassment on the job. We do not tolerate. The link between what's actually happening out on the shop floor or in the warehouse or in the office, and then this grandiose statement with the royal we, we do not tolerate, but in fact you do. Because it happened to me, it happened to my friend over here, I've heard of it happening. I don't want you to say we do not tolerate. I said we work towards a sexual harassment free environment. And then I want you to go directly into 45 ways for people to get help if they're dealing with sexual harassment. That's what your handbook really needs to be about. Talk to the person who's getting harassed, not threatening the perpetrator. The reason sexual harassment happens as much as it does at work is because it goes unpunished when it happens, either because it's hard for people to, to contact someone that can help them or because they're afraid. It might be their own boss harassing them. Happened to me, happened to so many people, and there's nothing they can do. There is nobody to talk to about that. So look at your sexual harassment process and consider the fact that your grand statement, we don't tolerate, is not helpful because it actually happens in the world and people don't want to hear, we don't tolerate it. No, but you are though right now. I unfortunately have had to advise people, working people for the last several years, go see a lawyer, an employment lawyer, before you talk to HR about sexual harassment because once you talk to them, fear, uh, uh, protecting the organization, oh no, sexual harassment, ah, danger, danger, is going to make them have to go into a very formal process that could come out badly for you in terms of retaliation. That's why you need to go see a lawyer before you even go to HR. Sad commentary. When I was an HR person, we did not have as fearful a, a viewpoint on this. My thing was, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, let me help, let me help. And then I would actually help, right? I, I would say, how, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to escalate this? Do you want, you know, what do you want? What would make you most comfortable? Which is what we should do, but that's gonna take some reorientation. It's gonna take some training that 
that most folks don't have access to right now. It's going to take a shift away from fear of defensiveness, playing close to the net, protecting the organization at the expense of the employee. It's going to take a change in outlook. And I would say looking at your employee handbook is a very, very important part of that puzzle. All right. I mentioned that the $15 an hour minimum wage, federal minimum wage, is in the, uh, the, the budget reconciliation process associated with our new President Joe Biden and his uh, American Rescue Plan to uh, provide relief during this COVID-19 crisis. Now they're saying it's going to get dropped out and will have to be addressed separately. So we'll see how that goes. But of course, I'm a big fan of the $15 minimum wage. It's not even enough to live on in a lot of places, but it's such a huge improvement, uh, more than double the federal minimum wage right now. Shocking, but true. We used to regularly revisit and raise the minimum wage, and then it just stopped over a decade ago, and people are living in dire poverty because of that. It's just wrong. It's just wrong. But there are objections from people who really are not economists at any other point, except when we're talking about raising the minimum wage. Big fear. People are going to get it who don't need it. Like, think about that. Who doesn't need 15 bucks an hour? No, they don't need it. They could, they could live on 12 and a half. Like, wow, that is out of touch. Out of touch. And the objection, well, prices are going to go up. Jobs are going to be eliminated, which is real ironic, because I never hear the, this population worrying about low-income people, unless we're talking about raising their wage. Then it's, oh, it's going to limit all these jobs. Now, the General Accounting Office, they want to change their name. The Federal Budget Office, whatever they're called, has said, yes, could eliminate a million jobs, a million U.S. jobs. But other uh, experts are saying, yeah, those million jobs are second jobs that these minimum wage folks have in order to make ends meet. Good, get rid of a million second jobs and let these people make 15 bucks an hour at their first job and quit the second job. But also we are reading that it's going to lift millions of people out of poverty, particularly children. So yeah, let's do that. Let's get a $15 minimum wage. And you know, to the naysayers and the folks who oppose the minimum wage say, you know what, let's do it. And let's deal with if, it, if, if there are jobs eliminated that people need, let's deal with that as a separate issue. Every single person getting $7.25, $8.50, $9.17, $10, $11, an hour is going to benefit the minute they get $15 an hour in their paycheck. And I'm thrilled. And I think that, uh, 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 that folks earning $15, $16 an hour right now will also see their wages increase because of competition, right? Competition for talent, that is. So it looks like $15 an hour minimum wage dropping out of the uh, bill under discussion right now, but I think it will come back and will keep being presented until it passed. God willing. God is willing. Okay, fantastic. Two more topics I will touch on and we'll dig into in episode 53. One of those is uh, insubordination. Amazingly, uh, I don't get a lot of correspondence about this because people sort of know how I feel. Unless it's someone like Bree saying, help me deal with this in my company, help me um, push back against managers who want to put somebody on probation for insubordination. I would just say, let's start with the calendar there. It's 2021. Are we really saying insubordination is a thing? If there is such animosity or such bad feeling 
such a severe disagreement that you feel somebody's language, the way they address you is so inappropriate or unacceptable that they have to go on probation, then you got bigger problems. You got bigger problems. And writing them up and giving them a piece of paper is a solution to nothing at all. That's the epitome of fear-based management. So that's all I'll say about that right now, but I think that's a good topic. If you had that situation arise at your workplace and got written up or threatened with probation for insubordination, a real military 1940s type of word, yeah, on the battlefield, I could see it. But in your basic office, I can't. Write to me if that happened to you. Write to us at support at humanworkplace.com. I'd love to hear your story and read it on the air. And I mentioned lab rat research, which is just the idea, you know, companies are looking at going back to the office after COVID-19. And I'm saying, yeah, so this is a great opportunity to not go back to the office for folks that would prefer to keep working at home. Maybe there's a meeting in the office here and there, or maybe they go in and out as they prefer. That's really the ideal scenario. But how could you we now, knowing what we know, having seen for the last 11 months that people can be productive at home, how could you just order their app? Ah, nah, it's over. Come back to work. You know, all the good stuff that you got from working at home, you could accept package deliveries or somebody comes to work on your washer or whatever. You could prepare dinner a little bit, chop up some vegetables <laughs> during a conference call, whatever. All that's gone. Now it's back in the office five days. You can't do that. That's absurd. You can't do that. That You just have lost all credibility around that the office is the only place where people can get their work done. But yeah, there really is a, is a, is a, is a subset of the population, managers and non-managers, saying, no, 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 you know, this is where all the great ideas happen and all the organic. And this is what I'm talking about when I say lab rat research, because folks will say, well, there's research that says people are more, you know, connected and come up with more collaborative ideas when they work together. Yeah, when they're there because they want to be. Now the, the, the whole thing is exploded. COVID-19 has shown us. They don't have to be. So it's not that research doesn't hold when the whole veil is lifted and that whole paradigm is exploded. And it's like, oh, so I'm there by force, but I'm supposed to organically collaborate with my, uh, we are not lab rats. We are thinking human beings. Those conclusions reached when people did not know that they could go home and still be perfectly effective and productive. You know, we can't rely on that research anymore. That's fear again, fear. If I'm not there, I get in trouble. So I'm gonna go there because I don't want to, but I have to, but I'm gonna organically collaborate and innovate with my coworkers. Come on, you guys, we hire humans. They can think, that's a wonderful thing. That's good for your business. We're not lab rats. So we're not gonna apply lab rat logic to working people. Yeah, so thank you for listening to the podcast. Follow us if you, if you think of it, on Twitter at Human Workplace and LinkedIn. My name, Liz Ryan, is where to follow us there. And then on Facebook, it's just Human Workplace. And um, yeah, we're so glad that you're listening to the podcast and telling your friends about it. We're here to reinvent work for people.